Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for uh, sticking with us. Oliver and I are back together. We're actually, today I'm in Spain and you're in... New Zealand. I'm in Wellington tonight. Okay, Wellington. At some point, we've got to take some time for you to tell us all about New Zealand because I know very little myself. I'm very ashamed to, to say that I have not been there. It's a, it's a very cool little country. Well, not to... I mean, I guess I'm biased in that yeah, Of course. Yeah. But... I want, we, we want to spend today talking about foundations of what is micromobility, and that sounds very fancy, but it actually came about for me personally as a journey. I never expected to be looking at this. Personally, I, when I was a child, I cycled to school, I cycled to the library, I cycled in many places in the U.S. I did not have a bicycle when I was in Romania because it was actually too expensive. Most people didn't, couldn't afford things like that. But for me, it was a utility vehicle. It was not something I did for leisure or exercise. I was just a kid trying to get places. I had a huffy bicycle with three speeds, and I had a basket in the front so I could carry books. It was really pretty boring looking. So I didn't really cycle after adolescence. And I did a little bit when I came to Finland for commute purposes. I did actually cycle to Nokia, weather permitting. And at the time, the infrastructure wasn't very good for cycling. I mean, there were bike lanes, but not everywhere. And so sometimes you had to hop into traffic to, to make some connections. So uh, Finland hasn't but, adopted yeah. the same level of infrastructure as Amsterdam and Sweden? Yeah, there's a, a website. I, I need to remember exactly what it is. We'll maybe put it in the show notes that where you can see what percentage of the real estate of a city is dedicated to which mode of transport. Because cars, for example, it's not just the roads, it's the parking that is real estate. And then you can take the entire geography of a city and then divide it up into meters or square meters of parking, uh, driving surfaces or roads, and then do the same for bikes and do the same for walking and do the same for trains and transit. And so when you do that, actually, this is more a measure of dependence on cars. Because if you see a city without any alternatives, you have a really a car-centric problem. And Finland actually, I mean, it's, it's not because they're dedicated to cycling, but because I think the city lends itself to that design, or maybe they're just progressive about it. And so what happened is, I think I did this and I ran the online app to calculate this index of car dependency, and actually Helsinki scored very well. The reason, again, is not that they were particularly aggressive on cycling infrastructure, but I think it they had a road design that lent itself to having this extra lane available. There are a few things that are, let's say, modern about cycling infrastructure. One is that you actually separate the bike lanes from the tarmac that's allocated to cars. You have a physical separation for safety purpose. You also have a different color asphalt. You have sort of a, a reddish color has come to mean cycling lanes. And that's actually a very good visual cue because both pedestrians and automotive drivers can see this red lane and see what, you know, that that's a cycling infrastructure. So these are fairly new developments. And I think the Dutch have been leading there. You also have a better allocation of parking for cycling, both around train stations where they tend to aggregate and also in the regular municipal areas. You want to not make bikes just be an afterthought that they're sort of attached to trees and to railings and things like that. 
So, so in that sense, I think Northern Europe has been more aggressively pushing that infrastructure story. The English, particularly London, is uh, there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of controversy towards infrastructure because it's become very politicized. The funny thing about the Dutch is that it's not a political discussion. They're all essentially agreed that cycling is not a political discussion. It's a question of good sense. You know, it's common sense. And yet it's been politicized in England because somehow there's an us-against-them mentality. And the weird thing about cycling in London is that it's actually the elites that are considered the cyclists. You know, sometimes when I say, look at the Dutch, they're cycling so much, you don't need to think about this being possible. There's an existence proof in Holland. And, and some of the responses, which may be sarcastic, that I've gotten on Twitter has been that, well, poor people, they must not be very wealthy or something like that. But the Dutch are not at all poor. But in fact, it's the opposite. The cycling today is an early adopter phenomenon. Utility cycling in advanced economies is an early adopter, which means that the people who are doing it tend to be wealthier, more educated. And as a result, it does create tension with potentially sort of the mainstream, the majority, and the laggards who, who tend to actually be poorer. Yeah, and it's also tied to just land use distribution and oftentimes suburbs are further out which are not bike accessible which is oftentimes the more affordable housing so you'd have right. the cities you know where all the rich live in the, the inner suburbs now because that's the cool and hip places to live and they can exactly it's the gentrification gentrification which is also creating tensions where wealthy people moving back into cities are causing tension uh, because those inner neighborhoods used to be known for sort of middle or lower classes and, and so on. And of course, England being much more of a classist society, oh, and the press loving it and eating it up and promoting it. But anyway, um, we don't want to go there for now. Just that's an interesting side conversation we should have at another time. I think we've got allocated one of the episodes to some of the political and, and social implications of micromobility. But I think what I want to make sure we focus on today is where did this term come from and so on. So I started with cycling. I did a little bit in Finland. And then I was struggling to understand transportation disruption, in particular automotive disruption. And spent three years doing this at the Christensen Institute. And I, took, you know, I started a SIM card to do that, to sort of narrate my own journey through automotive disruption. And we just couldn't hit any aha moment. We didn't have a catharsis of discovery. We mostly ran down every option and found no disruption opportunity. And that's fine. I mean, sometimes you've got to have a hypothesis and it has to be proven wrong and your theory has to match the experiment. And whether it's potential for electric drive, potential for autonomy or potential for sharing, we didn't see that really dramatically changing. Sharing is still, the jury's still out on that because there's a lot that can happen there, but there's a lot that more that has to happen that isn't happening to make that truly a disruption of the entire $15 trillion up for grabs now in, in terms of monetized miles. That was a frustration for three years. But, but then so late 2016, I came across an e-bike. Particularly, it was a high-end e-bike. Not, not, you could say I didn't discover the Model T. I discovered a Mercedes in 1900. And this would have been a very expensive vehicle at the time and only for somewhat the privileged and this bike in particular is a Stromer. It was priced at $10,000, so almost priced at the level of a car. But that wasn't the thing I saw. I didn't see a premium product. What I saw is the potential for that premium product to become very low-end very quickly, but also it was an intelligent product because it had onboard software. It had very crude onboard software and then display and a few other 
communication, for example, a few other bits and Bluetooth and so on, that hinted at what it could become. But then I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. So bikes are getting smart, and bikes could become really powerful and fast. And this model in particular goes to 45 kilometers an hour, which is about 31 miles an hour. So it's a and, uh, you know, Oh, yeah. If you, if you go 30 miles an hour on a bike in a city, it's unbelievable. I mean, 20 miles an hour is fast. And 30, I mean, you're, you're keeping up with traffic usually. You can be behind a car, and you'd be drafting, but you would be keeping up with it in, let's say, a suburban environment. The speed limits in European cities are 50 kilometers an hour. So at 45, you're close to that. And of course, traffic moves slower than the top speed, usually if there's congestion. So you're probably going to be the fastest vehicle on the road. If you can get through traffic, that bike will be the fastest way to cross town. And I've ridden this type of bike through Switzerland, through actually Zurich, and it's unbelievable. It, it's so thrilling that it, I can honestly say it's more thrilling than driving a Porsche. Because in a Porsche, you're not exerting, you're not putting energy in yourself. You're also not exposed to the elements. You're not in the wind stream. You're not absorbing the, the bumps, if you will. Some of the bumps you can feel at 45 is pretty impressive. So, so there's a lot of visceral action going on with cycling. And the electric drive is so seamless and it's so well designed to be complementing your activity that it feels like it's you. It feels like you want to have a cape on you, right, to, <laughs> to show off. Totally. No, I, uh, I, I got an electric bike about 18 months ago, and I used to ride it up and down to work, and it was just, that, that's exactly how I described it. And, and you, but you don't feel guilty because you are actually putting energy in, and that's the difference also. So one of the categorizations now we can get into is that this is a so-called pedal electric or pedelec. Pedelec is a European term, it's not a sexy term, but it's the best one we have so far to describe a bike where your input, your cycling, your torque that you're applying through the pedals is uh, detected and amplified through a motor. And there are various ways of doing this. One is to have a torque sensor in the crank itself on the bike and then have the motor either front-mounted in the hub or rear-mounted in the rear wheel. Or you can have it mid-mounted, which would be right in the pedal section, and then the motor is used to uh, amplify your torque and then pulls the chain, which pulls on the, the gears in the back. The, the feeling you get, really fundamentally, if it's done well, and it's not always done well, is that it's an amplification of your inputs. And so for that reason, it, it feels like you're cheating relative to cycling without assistance, but it feels like you're absolutely doing a hell of a lot of work relative to sitting and pushing a button or, or a pedal, which is what throttle-based systems are. So the pedal exits between fully human-powered vehicles and fully motor-driven vehicles. So it's a hybrid or bionic. If the bike was part of you, it would be like you're being assisted by a machine, but you're doing the work as well. In terms of watts, just a footnote here, a human cyclist can sustain, and an average one, can sustain about 60 watts of power. If you're a pro cyclist, you can maybe put out 200 watts in a sustained manner, like during a race environment. If you're like a power cyclist, these guys who do speed cycling around a track, I've seen videos, you can check these out on YouTube, of a guy being measured at up to 800 watts, just through the legs. If you're on a rowing machine, you can use your upper back and your arms and your legs and there you can probably output a thousand watts. But on average, the average person probably can do 50, 60 watts on a sustained basis. If you're older, very young, 
you're maybe in the 50s to 40 or 30 even, you do have quite a bit of torque in your legs. And the beauty of the mechanism of a bicycle is that it actually transfers that torque very efficiently through gears to power the vehicle. So although you don't have a lot of power, that torque is easily turned into speed through the mechanism of the bicycle, which makes it a work of genius as far as design is concerned. And this is why Steve Jobs said that a bicycle amplifies a human being to such an extent that he wanted to create a bicycle for the mind. And that was what the personal computer was to him. And he was referring to a Scientific American article in the 70s that actually measured the efficiency of different animals. And the human was really bad relative to, say, like a bird. And they also introduced some human machines like cars and trains. But in terms of efficiency and watt per mile, if you will, the human being was really not very good. But when you put the human on a bicycle, it shot up to be the best. And it was really a huge leap. Yeah. Interesting aside there, they then recently published studies looking at the efficiency of the electric bike. And so if you take the human and you assume that they eat food and then they digest it and then they take that energy and then they bike, the electric bike is about twice as efficient. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Because as I was going to say, when you have a human with 50 to 60 watts sustained, let's say for the sake of argument that 500 watts is about the limit of an electric bike, that's a 10x improvement over what the human can do. But that 50 watt doesn't go away. So when you're combining it, you're dealing with about 550 watts. Now you can ask, well, what does 500 watts, given the weight of the vehicle and the rider, what kind of speeds, what kind of power do you get uphills? And that's where the Superman effect comes in because you are getting 10x, you're getting better acceleration, uh, you're getting better ability to go over hills and climb things and so on. Actually, a very early, very successful application has been to mountain biking because mountain biking, you know, it's really fun going down, but it's really tough going up. But if you apply power on the way up, there's fun you can have going upward that has essentially the same dynamic as going down. And so Bosch is actually marketing effectively to cyclists who want to do mountain climbing. So anyway, that all along, all this means is that electric motors are coming into bikes. And electric has been in, in automotive. Electric has been in trains. And there's nothing new about electric motors. They're an older technology than internal combustion. You know, they're about 200 years old. The, what really makes it possible to bring these to, to small vehicles is not the motor, it's the batteries. The batteries have gotten so good and so small and light that we can couple them with motors and motors have gotten better and they've gotten smaller. We've got this potential to couple these two things and suddenly transform this fairly old technology, which again is great by itself, but with this added spice of power, suddenly it becomes something else. It's like, and again, I, I keep, I'm going to fall back on cell phones and, and PCs a lot because this happened before exactly the same way. If you look at the phone business, there were, we had phones for a century, and there were corded phones. Now, we didn't go cordless, though there were plenty of radio telephones possible for, again, for many, many decades. The cellular technology was also available for many, many decades. It was invented in the 1940s, frequency hopping. But it wasn't made possible to miniaturize and combine all these things into something really small until we had the microprocessor and the potential for essentially microprocessor-based communications chips, which is what enabled the cellular phone to compute 
and do the frequency hopping all on the very very small form factors and of course once the batteries got better that really caused the sector to take off in the 90s and the, the battery technology being uh, initially it was nickel metal hydride and IMH and now lithium ion and lithium ion was first developed by Sony to be used in camcorders in the late 90s and that technology meant that battery was lighter lithium is much lighter than nickel metal on top of that it had far less harmful issues with memories, having a memory in the system. So you could live with charging and discharging very happily for a long time. So the 2000s really are the era of lithium-ion batteries transforming multiple sectors. Consumer electronics, cellular phones, personal computers with the laptop, and now vehicles. And, and so when you look at vehicles, you say, oh, yeah, well, that means cars. Well, cars are a tough customer to electrify, but bikes are a lot easier. And as a result, we're actually seeing bikes now overtaking cars in terms of volume, way, way more, actually. I'll give the example of Germany's uh, 720,000 e-bikes were sold into Germany in 2017. That's going to reach a million very soon because it's growing at 20 to 30 percent. I wouldn't be surprised if we see 2019 or 2020 a million e-bikes. Now, German car makers have been somewhat lagging in terms of building electric cars, but they're ramping up. And Volkswagen says that they will make a million electric cars by 2025. Now, think about that. You know, Tesla's been around for almost more than a decade, actually. 15 years old company, and it's supposedly the leader, and they're making, they just made 100,000 cars last year and are hoping to break 200,000 cars this year. And they're struggling to make that number. But Germany alone is a million e-bikes, and globally, probably closer to 10 million. There's three and a half million e-bikes on the road in Germany or have been purchased and are still in use. That number, compared to the number of cars that are electric in, in Germany, is like, it's close to 60,000 electric cars in Germany versus three million. And so we're, we're looking at several zeros more added to the number. And China is similar, although Chinese e-bikes are more like mopeds. U.S. is lagging, but it's possible to see catching up there as well. But then, that, then you might say, well, hold on a second. You know, the U.S. has got scooters are catching on right now. It's sort of these stand-up scooters where you used to be kick scooters, now they're electric-powered, and that's, that's a category. And what about other things that have electric motors that are on the streets? Like even we had hoverboards as a sort of a fad for a while. And, and what, about, what about electric skateboards, like boosted boards? What about adding electric motors to bigger things that, that are three-wheel, like cargo bikes? Or, or what about velomobiles, which are reclining bikes with fairings that are aerodynamic? Now, that's what got me to think about, wait a minute, it's not just about bikes. If you go up and down the spectrum from a skateboard, you're dealing something in the 5 to 10 kilogram range, all the way up to hundreds of kilograms, which is, would be something more like a four-wheel vehicle that would still not be a car. And then all of these are getting electrified. All of these are becoming really exciting new products, which are transformed by motors and electric power. Then he's really starting to think, hold on a second, do we even have terms for all of these things? We, I'm struggling to, you know, in one country I say scooter and they think it's a moped. In another, they think it's this stand-up skateboard with two wheels. And then, of course, what is an electric skateboard? And we don't have a name for that properly right now, okay? That has to be explained and I have to draw a picture. Or what do I call a quadricycle, which has an electric motor, but yet it's not a car. And the European designation 
might be that that is indeed a quadricycle and it has a type certification for Europe, but in the U.S. that might be considered a golf cart. And then the golf carts themselves, they don't like that terminology because they're not used for golf, so they're starting to call them in the U.S. neighborhood electric vehicles. Then the Chinese have a similar question of what, what they call these electric cars that are not quite cars. They used to be called rural vehicles because farmers typically own them, but now they're calling them low-speed electric vehicles or LSEVs. So you have LSEVs, quadricycles, electric scooters, kick scooters and mopeds. Then you have everything in between. And of course, the bike is in the very middle of all that. This is why I decided that the term shouldn't be trying to spend 20 minutes describing it. Let's just call all these things micromobility. And micromobility turns out to be this term from Germany. But I'd like to popularize this word because it encapsulates the same phenomenon that microcomputing did back in the 1970s and 80s. Microcomputing as opposed to mini-computing and as opposed to general computing, which was the mainframe at the time, right? So, so that's the micromobility term. The, the definition I'd like to put forward as, as what that means is that it's any vehicle below a certain weight. Transportation is very well proxied by weight because if you look at the biggest vehicles, ships, they're defined by their displacement. Also, the ships go very long distances, trains go long distances, airplanes go very long distances, and those are very big, big vehicles. And then the smallest vehicles, which are very lightweight, uh, tend to go very short distances. And so when you look at weight immediately, you can sort of see how it correlates with distance, it correlates with cost, it correlates with uh, personal use versus group use. And infrastructure um, as well. And, yeah, impact impact on infrastructures, exactly. So the lighter it is, the generally the easier it is to deploy. And that turned out to be a good proxy for computers as well, everything that was pocket size versus uh, bag size or laptop size, and then all the way to something that was in your room. When I used to talk about this on Critical Path, I would say, for example, that you could think of mainframe computing as building computing, meaning that it was a computer for a whole building or maybe even the whole company. But it was something that took up a whole floor in a building and was therefore very architecturally dependent on the space. But then mini computing became departmental computing, and that meant that it, it only addressed a floor of that building, let's say the engineering department. And then desktop computing was an office computer, just useful in that one person's office. So you see, you know, building, floor, office. And then, of course, once it became portable, it became attached to a person, but it was like where on the person. You'd say, oh, in their backpack. Well, that's fine. That's a laptop. And then you go into your pocket, and that becomes a sub-microcomputer. We stopped using microcomputer, called a PC, and now we use this term. And unfortunately, we went from implicit size to this brand of PC, which is not as evocative, I think. And then we have Pocket, and like I said, we have Phone, which again is a computer, but we were calling it something else. And then you have Watch, and you have a wearable computer. So you see, you see the progress. You go, go from, from very big to very, very small, to the point where it might even be embedded in the future in some way. Sort of like, let's say, an ear piece that you insert in your ear or something like that, and that becomes truly, truly conforming to your body. So it's so micromobility in this in this case is something that's electric, less than five hundred kgs. 
That's right. So it doesn't have to be electric. I'd rather not even put that condition on there because it might, I think electric makes more sense because actually adding internal combustion to a micro vehicle makes it much heavier, right? You have cooling systems, you have to have fueling systems, you have to have lots of lubrications. And so internal combustion is a great system, but it, it just requires too much baggage. I've gone through this in making my own electric car and when you take away the oily bits, you simplify it a lot. You add complexity in terms of circuits and maybe wiring and batteries, but these are dry. These are not leaking oil. These are not hot and smoking and all these other things. The, the amazing thing about cars, the traditional internal combustion cars, is they actually encompass the entire spectrum of the arts and sciences, I think of it. Because if you think about the engineering problem, you're dealing with engineering issues around chemical engineering, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering. You're doing all the disciplines. You're doing material science. You're doing uh, thermodynamics. You're doing the chemistry and you know everything from materials to paint and everything else. The car is embodying almost all human knowledge. And anything that we come up with is absorbed by the car because it's suddenly we can make it better. But when you go to electric, you actually have to throw away a lot of that knowledge or it's embedded in subsystems that are so basic. Like, yeah, there's chemistry, certainly within an electric car, but it's at the level of battery chemistry. And it's not the liquid stuff that can spill and burn you like an acid in a battery does, an old-fashioned battery. And you have less issues with vibration. You have less issues with heat. You have less issues with stresses. And so that's why, in some ways, it's advanced, but in some ways, it's simpler. And, and so for that reason alone, I think it, I, I kind of have to assume that on the low end of mobility, vehicles which are really small, we actually want to go to a solid state technology similar to the way phones became from electromechanical to pure electrical to pure semiconductors. That progression meant that in some ways, like I said, it got simpler in the physical sense, but much more difficult in the software and the miniaturization end of things. Again, the analogy stands, in my opinion, between what's happening in transportation and what happened already in computing, is that going to small meant going to scale, much higher scale, much more utilization, much better economics. And fundamentally, that's what caused the disruption, is that expanded consumption, and it absorbed on the shelf technologies that were available, like semiconductors, like batteries, like cellular networks, and combine them in ways that would really make them much more accessible. When you think about cars, that's exactly what we need. We need more compute, we need more communications, we need more efficiency, we need more solid state, we need all of these things to be reduced that are now really complex 19th and 20th century evolutions. And it's, it's just so compelling to me that that's possible now. And the only question then in the spectrum of weight, let's use that as a proxy, from 5 kilograms to 500 kilograms, if you think about all the vehicle types available, and literally hundreds, in the car world, yes, there are many hundreds of vehicle types, but they are fundamentally sharing the same logic. So whether you're dealing with a Fiat 500, which is one of the smaller cars today, or a smart car, and you're looking at an SUV, they're all basically the same. Most people who see these things, who work on these things, they know how to deal with all of these things. But in the micromobility, there are quite strange dynamics when you're dealing with skateboards versus quadricycles. 
and but they can all absorb this influx of software and batteries and they absorb it very quickly relative to the car and the, the, as a result of the variety of form factors the variety of applications we're going to have a lot of experiments going on and this is what the venture capitalists call product market fit they might look and say, okay, I got it. You talk about micromobility as being this new sector that has been under the car up to 500 kilograms. I get it. Okay, but that's going to be big. But where am I going to place my bets? That's the really interesting question because you could bet on scooters. You could bet on bikes. You could bet on electric mopeds. You could bet on electric quads and then say, okay, what about cargo? What about delivery? What about... What about taxis? Where is the traction going to happen? I think this is going to be essentially the open question we're going to address during this whole show. I don't think it's knowable yet. Just like if you were to ask, well, it's 1976, Apple II is just, or Apple I is actually being built. You've got a bunch of hobbyists putting together circuit boards into, you know, microprocessors into circuit boards and then into computers, quote unquote, thumbing their nose at big IBM. But is that going to tell you from that point in time, 76, that we're going to see the birth of Microsoft? Is Big Iron going to really win the game because they're going to make the IBM PC and that's going to dominate? Or is the game going to change with Microsoft and potentially Apple and potentially yet other players which we had not even been born yet, which turned out to be the internet and the browser technology and so on? So there's so much and all these things were born because the platform of microcomputing was available. So now when talking hardware, but the real game is going to be on platforms, the real game is going to be on data, the real game is going to be understanding human behavior as opposed to really, really building a new form factor. Form factor is going to enable all that. And that itself is enabled by, like I said, technology on the shelf today. So this is why it's so exciting is that we're just seeing history play itself out, at least in my, from my point of view, it looks like history repeating not once, but not twice, three times over, right? I mean, the history of PC, then the history of phones, and now the history of micromobility follow the same pattern. In the narrative, in the drama of the incumbents, is still there, the David-Goliath asymmetry. So yeah, that's why this is exciting. And as I said, the definition I'd like to put out there, and I'm, you know, straw man proposal here, feel free to shoot it down, is that the weight is a good proxy that 500 kilograms is a good cutoff. And the, by the way, the reason that is a good cutoff is that, I don't know if I mentioned it in the first show, but I went looking to see what happened to cars and cars have just been getting heavier and heavier. There's a bunch of photos on the internet. I found these people who photographed the same brand, the same car, let's say a Ford Fiesta or a Volkswagen Beetle or a Mini or even a Porsche 911. And they showed it like a before and after. This is what it was like 30 years ago, and this is what it looks like now. And it's just like there was an obesity epidemic, and it just all got bigger and heavier. And it's true. It's across the board. You look at the Toyota Corolla. You look at any of the iconic brands that you can trace if you want, right? Never mind the fact that we you know, have SUVs and crossovers all over the streets, and these were considered Jeeps that were meant for completely different. I mean, it's a cliche to say, well, nobody goes off-road with an SUV, but now people just want to have these gigantic vehicles to drive around. And if you track weight, and then you see that, let's say, the C category class, which is sort of the compact car, if you looked at the C class over time, you just can see how the weight's gone up. You can also see the same thing for every category. You can see the hatchbacks getting heavier. You can see the luxury cars getting heavier. And, of course, the whole segment is moving towards the SUVs, which are monstrously heavy. 
And when you look at a Tesla and you say, well, what about electric? Well, they're actually even heavier because they're adding batteries. And so on a weight basis, you're using 5,000 pounds to drive around the person only weighing 200 pounds. I mean, that delta, the efficiency of the vehicle in terms of its payload, it's atrocious versus a bike, which is actually lighter than its payload. Most micromobility devices, let's say up to 200 pounds, if you will, and with 200 pounds, you can do a lot. There's no bike that really weighs that much unless, you know, it's got three wheels and it's a cargo bike, maybe. It has a ton of batteries on board, but it's meant to actually carry not just a person, but a cargo. In micromobility, things are human-sized. You know, you can index off of the weight of the payload. But in automotive, the payload's pretty much the same. The, the vehicle just keeps growing and growing and growing. And most of the time, the argument for doing that growth is like, well, we need to have optionality, we need to have long distance travel, if it's electric, we need safety and all these other things. Well, why do you need safety? Well, it's a circular argument because, well, we're going to hit some other big object or we're going to go at much higher speeds, which you never do because you're stuck in traffic or, you know, it's just there's a lot of nonsense, apparently, from a rational point of view as to why you should make a car bigger and heavier. It's a human condition, which I don't begrudge, but I mean, people do like having big vehicles, and I have no problem with them wanting that. The problem is that there's actually ways of getting people around much better, and if you gave them that option, I'm sure they're going to switch, because convenience is going to trump all that, and the economics is going to trump all that. And right now, you're just using this massive shelter to protect you against what is essentially an unpleasant experience, which is driving. So anyway, let's not get too far down that road. But the point is that 500 kilograms is interesting because no car today gets to hit that mark. It was possible. The Fiat 500, which was the iconic 60s and 70s Italian mini car, maybe the first city car ever. It was smaller than a mini, smaller than a deux chevaux. And that car was just... 500 kilograms. It was 499 kilograms. It wasn't named 500 for the weight. It was named after the displacement of the engine, which was nearly 500 cc's. But that was that package of a car. If you imagine that car today, it's to me, it's mission impossible to make a 500 kilogram car today. Even the Gordon Murray's T25, which is probably the smallest car I've seen in a long time, it comes in around 600, 700 maybe even. And it's a tiny, tiny little car with three seats. So a lot of that has to do with protection, but it's still extremely hard to make a road legal car today under 500 kilograms, which is why I thought it was a nice cutoff, because I, I would define micromobility as anything but the car, anything below the car, use these terms. So what is that? What is a minimum car? Minimum car, in my opinion, is 500 kilos. If somebody puts out a 500 kilogram regular car, excellent, please do. I'll give it an honorary micromobility membership. So that's, that's the opportunity, utility, utility transportation under 500 kilograms. This is the micromobility definition, not recreational, not sport. It's to get the job done of transport and two, at a very lightweight. But it also puts a huge opportunity because everything, the number of vehicle types, the vastness of opportunity is so big. And just witness the number of such four factors that are being proposed. I'll say one more thing, a 500 kilogram cutoff. I'd love to hear anyone challenge that and discuss what alternatives we might use as a proxy. Yeah, that's my thinking on what is micromobility. Anything under 500 kilos or 1,100 pounds, we can round it down to 1,000 pounds if you want. Um, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give the Americans that. The rest of the world use metric.
<laughs> that's why I like 500. But anyway, it's my preferred choice. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I'd like to think about this. Oh, one thing about an official designation, like I said, there's different terms in different countries because this is still so young that like early cars, the same thing. People didn't know what to call them. Automobiles stuck, but there were many. Horseless carriage was around and motorized this or that was an option. But you know, we kind of ended up with auto and we ended up with cars, sort of the Englishized version of that. But in Europe, there's actually a lot of this designations for vehicles that are not cars and so this type designation I think I think M4 may be the car or something like that but there's L designation which is anything that is not a car that is still motorized and so there are very very many L types this is this is actually far bigger space than car itself and and so you can look through that list when you see the variety there's I mean 80 different types maybe everything from off-road motorcycles to ATVs. And so you might seem constrained by 500 kilos, but I think it's liberating. You suddenly see a huge opportunity there. And now we'll have to dig in. Future shows, we'll have to dig in. Oh, what does it mean for scooters? What does it mean for mopeds? What does it mean for motorcycles? I mean, none none of these are particularly new. I mean, we've had these types for a long time. We've had motorcycles. We have tricycles yeah how, how does this differentiate itself from you know we've had we've had mopeds forever for me it, the electric bike is a materially different development so i'd love to really unpack that from you yes and, and in some ways if you think about calculators and you think about computers and you think about abacus and you think about tools of all kinds of adding machines and you had lots and lots of computing opportunities or computing form factors before the personal or the mobile phone and yet there's something different about the product that being the revolution at the time it's very unforeseeable even though so much seems to be obvious today and so much at the time was like well we've got all these things but what's so different and this is the magic of understanding a disruption is when things which are right under your nose things which are hiding in plain sight are put together in ways not just technologically but also in business models that enabled the transformation to occur and a new language to emerge, a new behavior to emerge, right? We end up with different words. We end up with different behaviors. We end up with different cultures as a result of the change. And, and how did that go about? This is at the heart what innovation is versus invention. Invention is just sort of putting it together and saying, ha-ha, look at this. It's cool, isn't it? And yet it's not used by anyone. Innovation is when invention gets applied to adoption or is adopted. So invention plus adoption is innovation. So to get the people to use the stuff, that's where the magic happens. And that's where value is created. That's where wealth is created. That's where economies grow. Economies do grow because of this and they end up actually causing uh, prosperity. And so that's the history of applied technology. And so that's what we need to work out. Is this the vector? The, these crude instruments we have in terms of electric motors applied to small vehicles that are used in a utility context, is that the added software and network effects with the added potential for ecosystems all of that will that cause the transformation we need and i I passionately believe and i think you do too as we've had this conversation before i passionately believe that this is much more transformative potential than the purely regulatory ones which are necessary but not sufficient or trying to make cars electric alone which is a great effort it's worth doing and i'm a big fan i have two of those but I don't think it's fast enough. 
nor in the sense of sharing, which is great, but it's again, it's going to require much more than that. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So that's why we're doing this. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for listening to us. We shall be back with episode three of Modern Mobility very soon. Thank you. Thank you.